this lukewarm church, this is the last of the seven letters to the seven different churches. This is in our progression through the book of Revelation. This is the second point where Jesus tells the Apostle John to write down the things that were, to write down the things that are, and to write down the things that will be. So we're about to finish up the things that are. This is the church age. There's an actual church in Laodicea. And for us as a whole, we should be praying and asking the Lord, Lord, am I the church of Laodicea today? Because again, there's actual churches in history that each of these letters are written to. It's speaking about the church age in general. This puts us in the church age. Some people either believe that this begins in the 1900s till today, that we're living in the church age of Laodicea. Other Bible scholars believe that you have Philadelphia and Laodicea running together since about the 1700s, and each church is either a Philadelphia being faithful and opening the door for Christ into their church, and Christ is opening a door for them. Or there are churches of Laodicea that are an actual closed door. Jesus himself is on the outside looking into these churches, and they don't even realize it or recognize it. And we have to be so careful in asking ourselves, am I lukewarm? Because the thing is, we're going to see this church doesn't even realize it. This church believes that they're rich, that they're wealthy, that they have need of nothing, and yet what Jesus says to them is that they are naked, poor, wretched, miserable, and blind. And today we live in a day and age where a lot of people don't trust doctors, right? We live in a time where depending on who your doctor is, you don't know if you could trust them or not, right? Whether it's Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz or whoever your doctor is, right? Dr. Pepper, I trust that guy, right? He's always been good to me, always been good to me. But there are many other doctors that we just don't know if we can trust them or not. We don't know if they're being fueled by a different agenda. We don't know if they're being fueled by money, if they put their stocks and investments in something. And it's created such a stir for people. Hey, if you know a good doctor, I'm looking for one. You can let me know after service. And it's good to have a good doctor, a truthful and honest doctor that's not coming to you with any sort of slant or angle behind them. And Jesus is going to come to this church of Laodicea as a truthful, honest, and faithful doctor and physician. He's coming to them not with a slant, not with an angle, not with a pocket, not with a stock that he wants to see rise or grow. Jesus is coming at them with only one desire, that they they would be faithful, that they would be overcomers, that he'd be able to dine with them, and that one day they'd be able to be seated in heaven alongside of him. That's Jesus' only desire for this church, and it's his same desire for us this morning. May we ask the doctor to truly speak to us and may we be humble enough to heed his counsel. I think it's just something that happens as you get older and older. You say, hey, how did the doctor go? And they're just like, none of your business, right? Don't ask me what the doctor said. Hey, are you following your doctor's orders? No, not really. I saw this online and this is what I'm going to go with instead, right? So I pray that as we receive what the doctor is telling the church of Laodicea, that we'd humble ourselves and say, Okay, Lord, where am I at? Historically, this city of Laodicea, the name Laodicea literally means justice of the people or judged by the people. And there's an interesting note, depending on which Bible version you have, verse 14 reads, 
the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, whereas each other church is in the singular form, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira, they're in their singular form. However, what we may be able to gather is Laodicea was a church of group think. They were of church that was not just one person seeking the counsel of God and following the Lord, but they were a church that was constantly asking people, hey, what does everyone think? What does everyone feel? What would make everybody comfortable? What would make everybody happy? And perhaps they were driving their decisions in the church based on what would make people feel comfortable instead of one man standing before God and saying, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city. They also had their own centers for Caesar worship like the other six churches. And they also worshipped the god of Asclepius, which we looked at earlier on. It was a god of medicine and healing. And attached to this temple, there was a school of medicine. We looked at this with one of the other churches, that people would go there. And at night, they would try to sleep in the shadows of the temple, hoping that snakes would slither over their bodies and that this God would heal them miraculously. Laodicea's school of medicine specialized in optometry. That was their specialty, and there was a special eye salve that was sent all over the Roman Empire that originated in Laodicea. It was a special ointment, special oils, and they'd mix it with dough, and they'd squish it on their eyes, and this would heal their eyes, heal their vision, and this was sent and exported all over the ancient world. Laodicea was also very close to the ancient city of Colossae, and Paul even mentions them in the book of Colossians several times. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea. And then in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, When this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. It seems that one of three things happened. Either Paul had written a specific letter to the Laodiceans, however, we don't have that in our Bibles for whatever reason. That wasn't fully, right, breathe upon the Word of God. Or the church of Laodicea was to read the book of Colossians as well. Or finally, the book of Ephesians was to be given to the church of Laodicea as well. In 60 AD, last week we mentioned this, that there was a terrible earthquake that affected all of Asia Minor. And as all seven of these cities are about 100, 150 miles radius of one another, it affected the entire area. And the Roman government offered and helped many of these cities to rebuild themselves. However, the citizens of Laodicea were so wealthy that they rejected and refused the help of the Roman government and financed the rebuilding of their own city by their own pockets. They also rebuilt the city to such a beauty and wealth and restoration that it was more beautiful than any of the surrounding cities. William Barclay says, Laodicea was too rich to accept help from anyone. Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us that Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. We noticed last week in the church of Philadelphia that they had great dependence on God. 
And because they were so dependent on Jesus Christ, this is what made their little strength go so far. But here with the church of Laodicea, it's the exact opposite. They believed they were so strong. They believed they were so wealthy. They believed that they had so much goods that they didn't really need God. They were fine without him. Again, a group of wealthy people, most of their wealth was derived from one of three places. That I solve that we already mentioned earlier, it was exported all over the Roman Empire. They were also known for having a very special species of black sheep. And this black sheep's wool would be turned and spun into a soft, black, and shiny cashmere-like textile. And this was sent all over the Roman Empire as well. And this would be on all the rich people. They would put it in their rugs on their homes. And this was very wealthy and very expensive fabric. Finally, Laodicea was right in the center of two major highways. So to go from any city east to west, you'd have to go through Laodicea. And to go through any city north to south, you would also go through Laodicea. The only knock on the city of Laodicea is that it was built on a small freshwater stream. And as the city grew and grew and grew, they outgrew this little stream. And now they had to bring in water from other places. With their money and with their wealth, they would build two different aqueducts. One was fueled from a sister city, Hierapolis, which is about six miles away. There was a hot spring there. If you've ever been to a hot spring, it's like a natural hot tub ride, and it's enjoyable, and people still go to those today. There's healing there. The water has minerals, and it helps with lots of things. There in Hierapolis, there was a hot spring with boiling water, and they created an underground aqueduct made out of terracotta pipes, and this would draw this hot water six miles from Hierapolis to Laodicea. The only problem is as it would go through its six-mile journey, it would be filled with the minerals and sediments of this water, and it would be filled with gunk. And as this hot water would travel six miles, it would become lukewarm. And when people would drink it, it wouldn't be hot water to make tea or coffee or your favorite hot drink, but it would be lukewarm. And with all the sediments and all the sludge, it would actually cause people indigestion and would turn their stomachs. The other aqueduct was actually from Colossae. They were up in the mountains. It was about 10 miles away. And there was a frigid cold water source up in the mountains. When we used to do youth camp in Virginia, there was this famous cave called the Ice Cave, right? And some of the guys, we'd travel into the Ice Cave and you'd have to dunk yourself under and pop up. And everybody's shaking and freezing. And you'd go into this freezing water. However, as you could guess it, as this cold, frigid water would travel 10 miles on the aqueduct, once it arrived to Colossae, it was no longer refreshing or thirst-quenching, but it was lukewarm. Lukewarm water. This will be important later on as we continue. Jesus writing to this church, that's why the letters may be in red in your Bible. He refers to himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Like the church of Philadelphia, Jesus doesn't pull from the list of characteristics in Revelation chapter 1. Instead, Jesus pulls from characteristics found in the Old Testament, and he starts off by calling himself the Amen. And maybe it's weird to us seeing Amen in the middle of a sentence, right? 
For many of us, amen is only at the end of a sentence or at the end of a prayer. But that word amen, it literally means truth or so be it. When we pray and we say amen, we're saying so be it or it is done. And this is a Greek word that, again, just means truth. William Barclay says that Jesus is the personification and the affirmation of the truth of God. It's taken from Isaiah 65, verse 16. It tells us, So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of Amen. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of Amen. That is the God of truth. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it tells us, For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him Amen. You see, all the promises of a God are found in and through Jesus Christ. There's no other way which man can be saved but in and through Jesus Christ. God promised that he would forgive their sins, that he'd wash their sins away. But the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus, their sacrificial system would only cover sins. But Jesus is the only way to completely forgive us and wipe away our sins. God also promised him that he would remove this heart of stone and this heart full of thorns and he would give them a heart of flesh soft to the things of God. This isn't in the Old Testament. This is only found in and through Jesus Christ. You see, our God is the only God of truth and Jesus is the perfect example and the perfect representation of God's truth. Oftentimes we end our sentences with amen or when we like something that the pastor is saying, we usually say amen. For the wives, when the pastor says something stingy to the husbands, the wives say amen, right? And when the pastor says something stingy to the wives, the husbands all go amen, right? Or whether it's parents or kids, we amen at each other, right? But Jesus oftentimes would start off some of his sentences with amen, in John 1, 51 and in John 3, verse 3, it either says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, which is amen, amen, or your Bible may read, Most assuredly, I say to you. Jesus is being real and honest and saying, This is truth, this is truth, and then speaking to his disciples. When Ken Graves was uh, here, I was with him, and we were watching an interview, and one of the guys goes, For real, for real, right? For real, for real. And he goes, I guess that's a new verily, verily, right? Verily, verily. For real, for real, I say unto you, right? Uh, with the young adults, they keep me young, right? And I think today you say no cap when you're speaking something honestly, right? You're not lying. And Jesus here is saying that he is the amen. And the insane thing about Jesus is not only does Jesus speak the truth at all times, but he himself is truth itself. You see, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way. There's no other way but through him. Jesus is the truth. There is no other truth but through him. Jesus is the life, and apart from him, there is no life. He says he's the faithful and true witness. You see, the Laodiceans had grown and become unfaithful, and they changed. They continued to compromise more and more to the point of going from hot or cold to now they had become lukewarm. You see, when something becomes lukewarm, it succumbs to the ambient temperature around it. If something would become lukewarm in this building, it would become 70 degrees. 
If you're in the mountains and it's 40 degrees and you leave something out there, if it's lukewarm, it's going to be the same temperature. If you leave a water bottle in your car and it's 110 degrees in there, don't drink that water bottle, right? But if it becomes lukewarm, it's going to be 110 degrees in there. And the church of Laodicea, they became unfaithful. They changed to the pressure and the temperature around them. However, Jesus and his stance does not change. And this is a blessing to us if we're like that father saying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a lot of encouragement there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it tells us, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, and he cannot deny himself. Again, what an incredible blessing when we are found in him. However, it's a harsh reality if he's on the outside of our lives looking in. You see, Jesus will not change his stance. If you're trying to make a sin okay, Jesus is never going to agree with it. His agreeableness with sin is zero, and his agreeableness with sin will be zero for all of eternity. Jesus is not the one that repents and welcomes you into his life. We are the ones that need to humble ourselves and repent and turn from our wicked ways. You see, he is faithful, he is true, he does not change. He stands there as the faithful and true witness of God. If we are to be found in him, we need to change. If we need to be found in him, we need to humble ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and change us and make us new. He says he's the beginning of the creation of God. This doesn't mean that Jesus was the first to be created, but that he is the ruler of all creation. He is the source of all creation, and he is the origin of all creation. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. If you remember, Paul, he mentions the church of Laodicea several times in the book of Colossians, and there was a heresy that crept into this church. And the heresy was that Jesus wasn't truly God, but Jesus was just created by God. And many of the cults today don't believe in the Trinity or in the oneness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But they believe Jesus is some type of separate creation. And some scholars believe Laodicea grabbed this heresy and truly believed in it. However, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, it tells us, For by him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. A little bit of a side note here. Maybe you're here and you're trying to discover what your purpose for Life is. Friend, you were literally created for Jesus Christ. Your whole life, your being, your existence was made so that you'd have fellowship with Jesus Christ. You'd have friendship with Jesus Christ. You would know him as that perfect big brother, that perfect master, that perfect Lord. That's our whole purpose for existing. And if we try to go for another purpose, you will find yourself empty, miserable, Blind, poor, and naked. Jesus is the beginner of all creation, and he is the instrument that started all of creation. 
We go back to Revelation chapter 3. Now in verse 15, he says who he's writing to. He says who he is. And now here's his message. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. You see, Jesus knows our spiritual state perfectly and truly. And it's through our works and deeds today that reveal what our true spiritual state is. Again, salvation is faith alone and Christ alone by God's grace alone. However, we see his salvation in us by what we are doing for Jesus today. Right here and right now. Sometimes we can live on a reputation We read the church of Sardis. They had a reputation for being alive, and yet Jesus saw them that they had become dead. And God doesn't want us to judge our our lives, and God doesn't want us to judge other people's lives based on reputation, whether it's good or bad. God doesn't want us to judge others or ourselves only on outward appearance. I don't know if you've ever been there, right? You have a friend of a friend that only has these negative things to say about someone, and you meet them for the first time and you're, you're coming in there and you're worried. Oh, this person is the worst. I heard this story. And as you talk with them more and more and more, you kind of say, this guy's not that bad, right? What was that person talking about? I don't know what they're talking about, right? Maybe you've been at that other extreme where someone has spoken so highly of someone. They're so incredible. They're so eloquent. They're so handsome. They're so beautiful. And when you meet them and they say their name and you realize it's the same person, you go, Man, is this the same person? All this hype? What are they talking about? This guy's a loser, right? What is this person talking about? I don't know if you've been there. Sometimes we think that our reputation is what God sees, but that's not what God sees only. In Matthew 7, verse 16, Jesus tells us you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Again, what is the fruit of your life? Is the fruit of your life, right, you could think of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, that agape love, that selfless, self-sacrificing love? Is the fruit of your life leading other people to Jesus? Is the fruit of your life a love for God's word and a love for God's people? Or is the fruit of your life a love for something else? That's going to demonstrate whether you are truly a believer or an unbeliever or a make-believer. God wants us to judge ourselves First, on faith in Jesus Christ, and secondly, on our works and on our deeds. James, one of my favorite books, James chapter 2, and James will mention it three times in chapter 2. In verse 17, in verse 20, and in verse 26, James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works attached to it, it is dead. Jesus is not going to judge you based on what you feel. Jesus is not going to judge you based on what you think. Jesus is not going to base you based on what you believe. Jesus is going to judge each and every one of us based on our works. That's how he's going to judge us. In Romans chapter 2, you can turn there. Again, an important scripture for us to choose a side, to see the reality of the mirror of God's word. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. The end of verse 5 there says, The righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. 
eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, it's through our works that we will be judged. It's faith in Jesus Christ, and then that's demonstrated based on our works. If our life's work has been, again, look at verse 7, patient continuance in doing good. If we're seeking for God's glory and we're seeking for God's honor, then there's immortality there. There's life and life abundantly for all of eternity. But if we are those who are self-seeking, if we are those who do not obey the word of God, if we are those who instead of obeying the word of God, we're obeying unrighteousness, for those, it's indignation, it's God's wrath, it's tribulation and anguish for every soul that that is your life's work. Friend, what is your life's work? What is your life's work? That reveals to you what your spiritual state is at. Not your reputation of 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Today, what are you doing for the Lord today? And after this truthful and faithful witness God tells him, right? Jesus tells him, hey, I know your works. And he says, you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. That word cold, it's the antithesis to hot. It's literally the exact opposite of hot. It's more than just cold. Rather, it's positively icy cold. Never having tasted the warmth. On Wednesday night, sometimes the AC gets at 68 degrees and everyone in the church is, it's cold, it's freezing in here, right? It's not talking about 68 degrees, it's talking about ice cold. Something that has never tasted the warmth. Like the cold spring in Colossae, like that ice cave, it's something that has never tasted warmth. The word hot there is literally boiling. It's the Greek word zestos, which is where we get our word zesty from. And as believers, we're called to be salt and light. We should be a little zesty. There should be zest in our lives. It's the same word for passionate, for fervent, and for zealous. And Jesus desires that they would mostly be passionate, fervent, and zealous for Jesus. Or that they would be cold and icy, having never tasted the warmth. Notice these verses, it's the same words here in Songs of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. It says, set me as the seal upon your heart, as the seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Again, it's not talking about a little lighter, it's talking about a burning fire. Luke chapter 24, verse 32, these two men on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus is talking with them and walking with them, when Jesus disappears, they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? 
This is what Jesus desires from us, is that as we hear the voice of God, our hearts would be burning. There'd be passion, there'd be zeal, there'd be zest. When we're reading God's word, that there'd be a hunger and a drive. In Acts chapter 18, verse 24 through 25, speaking of Apollos, it says that he was a man fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Finally, Romans chapter 12, verse 11, it tells us to not be lagging in diligence, but to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Again, the church of Laodicea, they were not cold and they were not hot. Instead, they were lukewarm. Their spiritual temperature changed to the spiritual temperature of the city around them, of the culture around them. The church of Laodicea was filled with people who were stragglers. Those who attend church and are fence sitters. Those who attend church and are half-hearted. I wrote down here, they are the church zombies. They come out of the parking lot and, uh, right? They just come into church. Maybe worship starts and, uh, right? I don't know. I don't know if they raise their hands or not, right? And as they walk out of the church, the minute amen, the minute hey, worship team comes up, they begin to slowly, half dead, half alive, walk out of the church. This past summer, I taught at a youth conference with my dad in Atlanta, Georgia, and I, I gave the youth a Spanish lesson. I was warning them of the spiritual state of growing up in church and just staying there in church and doing nothing. So I taught them the words, saco de papa. That's a sack of potatoes. And some of us, you know exactly what this is. That one family member, that one friend that you could literally just grab a 50-pound sack of potatoes, put a smiley face on it, put their favorite cap, and throw it on the sofa, and you'd realize no difference that they were there or not there. (laughs) And sadly, some of us in church, we're exactly the same. If we just grab your favorite seat in the sanctuary and grab a sack of potatoes, and put a hat and your favorite Calvary Chapel sweater and throw that there on the blue chair, no one would realize any difference because you're lukewarm. You're half-hearted. You are indifferent. Apathy has grown in your heart and you do not care. The conviction of God never affects your conscience. You come here to be entertained. You come here to feel good about yourself. You come here so your family or your friends or the church thinks that you are holier than you really are. And that's the most dangerous place to be as a human being. And that's the favorite place of Satan. Satan loves his drink served lukewarm. He loves people who are lukewarm because they have enough of God in their lives that they think they're okay and yet they are dead in their sins. Skip Isaac, he says, a lukewarm person does not take Jesus seriously. A lukewarm person does not take the Bible seriously. A lukewarm person does not take sin seriously, but they wink at it. They joke about it. A lukewarm person does not take this lost world seriously. A lukewarm person does not take fellowship seriously. They could care less about spending time with God's people. A lukewarm person does not take the Bible as the guide, the guide to life itself. Family, friend, again, may we be praying, Jesus, show me this morning, show me this afternoon if I am that lukewarm believer. 
You see, the church of Laodicea, they were trying to play the middle ground. The comforts in their lives drove them to make decisions based on fear of losing their comforts. They had accrued so much wealth. They had so many nice clothes. They had so many nice things that now they were making decisions out of fear of what happens if I lose this? What happens if I lose this? We have to be careful because the same heart and mindset can creep into our lives. I think in the parable of the talents, the one man in Matthew chapter 25, verse 24 through 30, watch this. It says, there was one man and he took his talent and hid it in the ground because he was afraid. The master comes back, Jesus comes back and he says, look, you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. And look what the master, the perfect loving master does to this servant. In verse 30, he says, cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This man was given one talent from his master, given a talent from Jesus Christ. And yet because he was making decisions based on fear and he did nothing for the kingdom of God, he will be cast into hell for all of eternity. Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, Jesus warns us, no one can serve two masters. He's either going to hate one and love the other or else he's going to be loyal to one and despise the other. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it tells us, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed. You see, if we're making decisions based on keeping our comforts or comfortable lifestyle, you are slowly creeping into a state of being lukewarm, or perhaps you're already there. If you're fearful of your zeal causing friction in your family, hey, let's go to church. Hey, let's go do this. Hey, let's stop watching that. And that's driving you to dumb it down and to water it down and to cool it down. Perhaps you have become lukewarm. I love 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. Elijah comes before all the people and he says, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal... Follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And this is the same stance Jesus takes this afternoon. He looks to each and every one of us and he says, make a decision. If Jesus is truly God, if every single human being will have to stand before him, if we are found in him through faith, and if our works and actions are for him, then serve him with all your heart. But if there's something else that you think is God, go and serve that with all your heart. If you're trying to make a decision on the biblical aspects of marriage and gender and pornography, make a decision today and serve one with all your heart and see where it leads you. Stop this middle ground. Stop this half in, half out, this lukewarm state. God asks of us. He demands of us this morning, make a decision. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Did I not serve in the cafe? Did I not serve in kids' ministry? I've cast out demons. I've done many wonders in your name. And Jesus will reply to them, Depart from me, for I do not know you. I don't know you. There's a warning to us this morning. Do you truly have a friendship with Jesus Christ? 
What is your work? What are your deeds today? Charles Spurgeon, he says, they are neither hot for the truth, nor are they hot for conversions, nor are they hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither hot nor cold. And what does Jesus desire? Jesus desires that they would be cold or hot. That's Jesus' desire. He would rather, right? His chief desire is that each of us would be blazing hot with passion and about our Father's business. However, if we're not there, he would rather we were ice cold when it comes to knowing him. Ice cold when it comes to rather knowing about him. Donald Barnhouse, he says, So the Lord is saying, if instead of being lukewarm, you were so cold that you should feel that coldness, then the very feeling of your need might drive you to the true and only warmth. But now in your lukewarmness, you have just enough to protect yourself from feeling your need for Christ. A.R. Fowl said, he says, there's more hope of the cold. That is the person who is of the world, not yet warmed by the gospel call. For when called, they may become hot and fervent Christians, such as did the once tax collectors Zacchaeus and Matthew. But the lukewarm has been brought within reach of holy fire without being heated by it into fervor. Having religion enough to lull our conscience into a false security, but not enough religion to save our souls. I think there's a lie that Satan presents to many Christian parents. Many Christian parents fear that the worst state their son or daughter could be in is a prodigal. They're afraid, man, I just hope my son or daughter never becomes a prodigal. However, that's a lie from the enemy. Here Jesus tells us of three states, and what's his favorite state? Hot. Second state? Cold. Third state? Is lukewarm. You see, Jesus in his truth, Jesus being the truth, Jesus being the truth and faithful witness, he begs to differ with this idea that the prodigal is the worst of children. You see, if we create lukewarm Pharisees, if we create that older brother that thinks that they are good, this is the worst of spiritual states. David Guzik, he says, the thief on the cross, he was cold towards Jesus, and then he clearly saw his need. John, he was hot towards Jesus. He enjoyed a relationship of love, being that disciple whom Jesus loved. But Judas, Judas was lukewarm. Jesus followed Jesus close enough to be considered a disciple. People would see Judas, hey, he's with Jesus. He talks like Jesus. He acts like Jesus. However, he never gave his heart over to Jesus in fullness. Friends, we have to be careful that we are not warming up our family members or our friends or boyfriend or girlfriends to the point where they think that they're okay with God when they are so far away from them. We have to be careful. That's why all over the New Testament, anyone that confesses that they're a Christian and is living in sin, we are to have no fellowship with them. We are to be ice cold with them. Why? Because we hate them? No. 
so that they would feel the frigidness. They'd get that hypothermia and they would cry out to the only place where there's heat and warmth, love and salvation. Isaiah 29 verse 13 says, Therefore the Lord says, Inasmuch as these people, they draw near to me with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but they've removed their hearts far from me. And their fear towards me is taught by the commandment of men. You notice these men, they're confessing Jesus, they're talking about Jesus, but their hearts are far from Jesus, and their respect and their reverence to Jesus is not by the Bible, but it's by what people think. It's by what the world is telling them. That is such a dangerous place to be. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, it says, those having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Again, a dangerous place to be. You have some type of form of godliness, some type of form of religion, but you deny the power to help you defeat sins. You deny the power to help you defeat and be transformed where the old Zach is dead and gone, and now there's a new Zach alive in Christ in him. Denying the power of Christ to forgive someone. Dangerous place to be. In Titus chapter 1, verse 16, it says, They profess to know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now in verse 16, Jesus says, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, this lukewarm state makes Jesus sick. This lukewarm state, this fence sitting, this being in this middle ground area makes Jesus sick. However, there's grace and mercy here. He's not saying that he has already done this. He hasn't said that he's already expelled them violently. But he's saying, I'm about to do this. I'm getting ready to do this. And if you don't change, this is what's going to happen. A.R. Falsetti says physicians used lukewarm water to cause a vomiting. Again, and as the Laodiceans are reading this every day, they're faced with the fact of this gross water, right? This lukewarm water. It's not hot enough to brew anything good, and it's not cold enough to refresh us or make us feel comfortable. Jesus is warning them, hey, I'm about to violently expel you out of my mouth and away from my presence. And I think sometimes we forget about this. What do you do with something once you vomit it out? I know, a question I never thought to ask on a Sunday morning, right? <laughs> what do you do with it? You throw up, ah, what do you do with it? You flush it down the toilet, you let it go on the grass on the side of the road, and you drive far, far, far away from it, right? You don't put it in a jar, you don't save it for later, right? I've, I've had many kids. When you have kids, you get vomited on tons of times, right? I haven't once gotten a little scrape and said, oh, I'm going to save this for the scrapbook, right? I'm going to save this for the scrapbook later on. You see, when we vomit something out, we get away from the presence of that vomit. We flush it. We drive away from it. We get rid of it. And that's the warning to us this morning. This God of love and grace, and we're about to see how gracious and loving he is. His warning to us is that if we do not change, he's true, he's faithful, he never changes. If we do not humble ourselves and repent, we will be expelled violently from his presence not to return. Not to return. Again, a warning to us. 
And verse 17, what does he do? Out of complete love. He says, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, the danger of being lukewarm is that they were completely unaware of their true state. Completely unaware. If you'd ask someone from the church of Laodicea, hey, how's the church doing? Man, we're so rich. We're wealthy. We don't, we don't even need to pray for anything. We have everything going on. And however, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Them becoming wealthy is not just physical wealth and money and gold. The church of Laodicea probably thought that they were spiritually and intellectually wealthy. These are the people that look down and scoff at people that have childlike faith. These are the people that look down on people that believe from Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of God, and they laugh at them saying, oh, you're so dumb, you're so little, how can you still believe that? I've arrived, I have Jesus, but now I have intellect, and I really believe what the Bible says. These are the people that scoff at people that just have that childlike faith, that come to God believing that he is who he says he is, that his word is what he says it is, and they believe it and live it wholeheartedly. They think they're wealthy, but Jesus looks at them and says, you are poor and miserable. They think that they're in a good state. They think that because they don't hurt anyone, because they can talk in the right language, because they say the right words, that because they've never offended anyone, they think that they're better than someone else. And Jesus says, you are miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They think they have it all. They think they're above the majority of the church, and yet they are in the worst state possible. They think their life is good, but when you look at the fruit of their life, it's miserable. It's not someone that you look to and you want to be like. It's someone that you pity and feel bad for. That's who the church of Laodicea had become, and that's the warning to us. We need to ask the Lord for spiritual eyes that we'd humble ourselves. Because our pride lies to us, and we don't realize we are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Again, they thought they were more spiritual and more holy than the people around them based on their speech, based on their intellect, based on what they knew, based on getting things of this world and mixing it with biblical things. And Jesus looks at them and says, you are wretched. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you. Again, he still gives them a prescription. He doesn't kick them out. He doesn't say, you're done. He says, no, I counsel. Here, here's my prescription. To buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Again, not only is Jesus the perfect doctor, but now he's giving us the prescription out of pure love. And now the warning to us this morning is, will we heed his prescription? Right? I don't know if it's something that as you get older and older, you ask someone as they're getting older, hey, how did the doctor go? None of your business, right? That's between me and the doctor. Don't you ask me about that. Hey, are you following the doctor's prescription? He told me I should do this, but I don't know if I could really believe that guy. I saw this video on YouTube. I saw him go with, right? There's a danger to us. We think we're one thing. The doctor gives us what we should do, and we don't follow it. 
I think of my grandma sometimes. I miss her so much. And one time she went to a doctor's office, and the doctor's telling her, Clara, you're not healthy. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. She proceeds to go, doctor, I'm fine. And she does a split on the table to show the doctor she's perfectly healthy. She, Doc, I'm perfectly healthy. Look at how flexible I am. Look at how flexible I am. And some of us, that's how we come to Christ. Jesus is warning us, you are absolutely dead on the inside. If you don't turn, if you don't change your ways, you're absolutely dead. And we come to and say, hey, look what I could do. I'm still going to church, so that means I'm fine, right? I'm still serving, so that means I'm okay. My friends think about this. My reputation still precedes me, so that still means I'm okay. And Jesus is saying, no, internally you are dead and damaged, and if you don't listen to my counsel, you will be expelled from my presence. Again, this truthful witness, this loving doctor, so gracious, and this counsel to buy gold, I think is in two Parts. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And again, the, the comparing and contrasting between the church of Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea. Philadelphia, they had little strength and great dependence on Jesus Christ. The church of Laodicea, they believed they had great strength, great wealth, great intellect, so they depended so little on Jesus. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through, I think this is the first of this two-part process in order to buy gold from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 7, Philippians chapter 3, it tells us, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Again, we need to come to a point where what we once thought was gain to us, we now see it as loss and rubbish. The only way we can come to Christ is leaving those things behind. Saying, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. My intellect doesn't make me a better person. My group speak doesn't make me a better person. My knowing the language or knowing this or knowing that doesn't make me a better person. Again, as far as righteousness, there was no one more righteous than Saul of Tarsus. Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, keeping the law. He says, right, perfect, right on. And he says, that was all rubbish, that's all trash, that I may gain Christ. So first we have to empty ourselves, let go of ourselves and realize, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. I am completely dependent and relying upon you and your word. Again, when we come to Jesus and we think we can judge Jesus, we think we can judge his word, we think we can judge and say, this is true, this is not true, friend, you are in a dangerous place. The second half of this is found in Isaiah chapter 55. And in Isaiah 55, if you could please turn there, we see the gospel presented to us. Don't let anyone tell you the Old Testament that we don't need it anymore or it's, it's dumb or it's not needed. Again, so important, the whole counsel of God. And there in Isaiah chapter 55, 
and we'll read verse 1 through 7 together. It says, Whoever thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, right? lots of the youth, lots of the young adults, right? Come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Again, the only way we can come and purchase this gold is by leaving all else and coming to Jesus Christ. By saying, my life is dead and now hidden with Christ on high. That's, that's the only way we can purchase this gold. We have nothing to buy. We have nothing to offer to receive it. It is through faith in Jesus Christ by His grace and His grace alone. Friend, leave everything else and run to Jesus. Be that living sacrifice. Give every ounce of your being, every ounce of your life to serve Him and love Him in the big things and in the little things. That we would be able to buy from Him gold refined in the fire. In 1 Peter, Peter talks about how trials test our faith and it proves the genuineness of our faith. If we have a real faith, a real genuine faith, or if it's just a fake faith. And he says the genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. And again, this gold refined in the fire, it's a genuine relationship with him. And it's only when we have a genuine relationship with him that we're going to be rich. That we may have nothing, but we'll have everything. Again, the warning Jesus says is, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There's nothing we can do to purchase a soul that is heaven bound. There's nothing we could do. Even if you accrued all the wealth on this world, you could still not purchase a soul that is destined for heaven. The only way to do that is to die to ourselves, crucified with Christ, and now live for him. That he'd give us those white garments. Again, Church of Laodicea saying, forget about those black, silky, shiny clothes and come and take on my white garments. Then he says that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He says, man, I want to hide your shame. How shameful will it be to get to heaven and hear those words from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. 
What a shameful place to be at. Thinking your whole life you were okay with him in this lukewarm state. And then you hear, depart from me, I never knew you. What shame. Uh, Again, that's such a difficulty to us. Whenever we're talking with someone and we think the talk went great. And then you go look in the mirror and there's a huge piece of spinach there. What shame. You go to a wedding and you think you look super handsome and great. And you go to the mirror and you got a huge hole in the back of your pants, right? What shame. You have a great study, you taught a great message, and then you check your fly was open the whole time. What shame. And Jesus is saying to come to him, humble yourselves, repent, and I will clothe you to protect you from that shame. Because family, there's no shame when we're in Jesus Christ. There's no fear. Zero fear, zero shame. He says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Laodicea, you guys are famous with, of this, right? You guys got the commercials, right? Dry eyes, right? And man, you guys have this. Yet you are blind. You don't see your true spiritual state. You think your intellect, you think your ability to not offend anyone and talk in the right way. You think that's what leads to godliness? You are blind and wretched. Come to me. That's what Jesus is telling them. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Again, we may hear these words and say, man, what's up with Jesus? Such So, so much hatred. He goes, no, if, if I'm rebuking you, if I'm chastening you, it's because I love you. I like you. I enjoy your company. I desire your company. And that's why I'm asking you. I'm begging with you. I'm pleading with you that you would be zealous And repent, right? That word therefore is in view of Jesus' love for us, in view of Jesus' rebuke and chastening, we ought to be zealous and repent. Think of Hebrews chapter 12. It says a loving father chastens his sons and daughters. Don't buy into the lies of this world. Proverbs says if a parent does not discipline their kids, they hate them. They hate them. If you don't discipline your kid, you literally hate them. That's what God's word says. And if we love them... We will rebuke them and we will chasten them. Therefore, be zealous. That word zeal is that same word zestos, right? That we'd have zestiness. We'd have zeal. We'd have that burning passion once again and repent. Ask for forgiveness. Lord, forgive me for succumbing to the spiritual climate around me. Lord, forgive me for not being hungry for you. Lord, forgive me for not caring about your word or caring about your people or caring about you. That's what Jesus asks of us this morning. He doesn't kick us to the side. He doesn't say, you're done with, I'm over you. He's asking us, hey, be zealous and repent. Verse 20 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. And he with me. Again, there's some people that believe other things when it comes to theology, but Jesus is here waiting outside for the person to open the door. He is graciously and humbly knocking, waiting for that person to open the door. And this is how a church has life poured into it once again. He doesn't say the church opened the door. He says, no, you individually, you by yourself, you personally, if you open the door to Christ, that's how life will be born into the church once again. It's not just a huge organization. It's each of us individually that affect one another. Jesus is standing outside and knocking. 
He's literally on the outside of this church looking in, and they don't realize it. There's a famous painting of Jesus knocking on the door, waiting for someone to open the door, and someone told the artist, hey, you messed up. There's no doorknob on the outside. And he goes, no, that's exactly the way it is. There's only a doorknob on the inside of the heart. There's only a doorknob on the inside. We have to open that door and allow him to come in. It's not just hearing his voice, right? Pay attention here. It's not just hearing his voice, but it's opening the door of our lives. Right? Jesus, he has the parable of the wise man that built his house on the rock. Jesus says, it's those who hear these words of mine and do them and obey them. That's the wise man, that we're hearing God's word and we're being obedient to it. The foolish man who built his house on the sand that will one day the storms will come and there will be a great fall and demise of that house. He says, they hear my words, but they don't obey them. So again, that's a warning to each of us because we're hearing his words this morning, this afternoon. But will we obey them? And notice, he doesn't say, I want to come in and wreck you. I want to come in and send you back to the fields to work. I want to come in and, man, put you in time out so we get to heaven. No, he says, I will come to him and dine with him. And he with me. And again, so specific, the word dine here, it's not the quick breakfast that we inhale, right? The two Pop-Tarts and the coffee on the way to work with one person. It's not even the ventanita, right, at La Carreta where you're having your coffee and croqueta real quick before you run and go to work. This is the last meal of the day. This is after all the work is done, everybody settled down, and you get to just eat and talk for hours and hours and hours. And that's what Jesus desires from each and every one of us, is to just be able to sit down with us and talk with us and spend time with us. Verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. The worst of the churches almost has the best and greatest promise if they would only overcome. If they would overcome this lukewarmness, Jesus promises them, hey, you're going to be with me there in heaven, sitting with me on the throne of heaven. We don't have to stay in this lukewarm state of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Once again, may we be overcomers. May we not stay in this lukewarm state. And each of us, we have some type of passion. Each of us, we have some type of zeal. It's just attached to the one thing we love. You see, Laodicea, they weren't that church, that person that their favorite color is light tan, right? It's not that person that their favorite meal is stale crackers and saltless cheese, right? That person we all know and we love dearly that they just don't like anything. They get excited about nothing. That wasn't the problem in Laodicea. They had zeal, they had fire, they had passion for their clothing, for their eyes solve, for their money. They had passion, just none of it was for Jesus Christ. And the same thing happens in many churches today. We arrive at church like that zombie, like that sack of potatoes. Yet if we were at the Dolphins game, we'd be screaming at the top of our lungs. We'd have no shirts on, stomachs painted out there for the whole world to see, Right? We have that zeal. We see a heat game and a stranger that will never say a word to us makes a basket and we jump up and down screaming. We have zeal. Our favorite TV show, our favorite fictional superhero characters that do not exist, we have zeal. 
Yet when it comes to the things of Christ, we have no love. Politics, zeal, hunger, fire, burning passion. Seeing our country come back to its former glory, hunger, passion, drive. Seeing money in our bank accounts, our families grow, our children become the men and women we desire them to be. There is passion and zeal there. Yet for Jesus Christ, crickets. I don't know if I could go to church twice. I don't know if I can make that decision with my family. And we have to be careful that we are not dumbing down the passion inside of us to comfort and appease our family members. That's when you're becoming lukewarm. If we are more fearful of what our family is going to think or our friends are going to think or our world around us is going to think, we are becoming lukewarm. Again, may we have that zeal. We have that passion, but it's for the thing that we love. Again, man, if it's your anniversary and you give your wife a $10 gift card to McDonald's and say, hey, honey, have a great time, there's no passion there. And there's no passion there because the love is long gone. you have any passion for Jesus? have any passion to serve him? Zeal, hunger, and vigor to see him do mighty things once again in our lives? Is that there in your heart? Again, where is the love for Christ and all that he's done for us? The worship team came, came up and the pastors and just finished with this quote. Charles Spurgeon in his sermon, An Earnest Warning Against Lukewarmness. Spurgeon describes the lukewarm church. Super convicting to me, so I'll share the conviction with you. He says, They have prayer meetings, but there are few present for they like their quiet evenings at home. They are content to have all things done decently and in order, but vigor and zeal are considered to be vulgar. They have schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, all sorts of agencies, but they might as well be without them, for there's no energy displayed and no good comes from them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church if... The chief quality of these pillars is to stand still and exhibit no motion and no emotion. The pastor does not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel, and he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, but he certainly is not a burning fire of grace setting men's hearts on fire. Everything is done with a half-hearted, a listless, a dead and alive way, as if it did not matter whether it was done or not. Things are done respectably. The, the rich families, they're not offended. The skeptical party is not conciliated. And the good people are not quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done, but as to doing them with all your might, doing them with all your soul, doing them with all your strength, a Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. They are not so cold as to abandon their work or to give up their meetings for prayer or to reject the gospel. Again, family friend, I pray that we'd be set ablaze once again for Jesus Christ. That that love for him and that passion for him would overflow and we'd have no fear of what man thinks or what man can do to us. 
that our chief desire would be to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not well done, good and fearful servant. Well done, good and safe servant. Well done, good and middle ground servant. To be faithful is to give all for the Lord. Why? He gave all for us. Jesus wasn't middle ground. Jesus wasn't halfway. God, I have to be perfect for those 33 years. How about, can I be half perfect, right? I have to die on the cross. What if I spend half of the time on the cross, I sort of peace out, and then I come back? No, it was all done to perfection, to all the passion and the desire. So again, may that passion and that desire be in us. That might be too much for you. Know that the Lord, he meets you where you're at, but make that decision today. Like we read with Elijah, make that decision today. Jesus, he's asking you to make a decision today. If he's really God, if every human will have to stand before him and give an account, serve him with all your might. If there's another God, if it's sex or money or fame or another lifestyle, and you think that is God, go and follow that with all your heart. And my hope and prayer is in the frigidness of that, in the cold of that, one day you'll turn back to the only place where there's life and heat. 